Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, we're entering sort of weird 19th century power politics here in which you have, you know, bombast and masculinity and summits and gunboats almost. And, and uh, you know, who knows where we're going with it. Welcome back to the New Statesman's New Times podcast. I'm Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor of the New Statesman. One of the big questions of 2017 is what kind of Donald Trump will the world see? I think there are two Donald Trumps. There's the public version and people see that and uh, I don't know what they see exactly, but it seems to have worked over my lifetime. But uh, it's probably different, I think, than the personal Donald Trump. Will we get the Trump who regularly stirs up potential global conflicts on Twitter? Or will we be greeted by the more strategic version who behind the scenes is friends with Henry Kissinger? Here today to discuss this with me and also to consider how the left should best respond to Trump are John Bew, Professor in History and Foreign Policy at the War Studies Department of King's College London. John is also the author of the acclaimed biography of Clement Attlee, Citizen Clem, and a regular New Statesman contributor, and George Eaton, the New Statesman's political editor. I suppose one of the questions that's preoccupying those in the foreign policy establishment and in the wider world is what kind of President Trump the world is likely to see in 2017 and for the four years of his administration. Are we going to be confronted with a sort of more isolationist America or will he live up to the more aggressive internationalist side of his rhetoric? Trump very much has a duality at the heart of his character, which makes him very hard to read, John. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, you, you can definitely say that those of us who've been scoring through his policy pronouncements on the campaign trail were kind of at a loss, really, to put together what might, a Trump doctrine might look like. But the pieces are starting to fall into place in terms of the appointments he's made. Um, and surprisingly, actually, some issues are not going away, such as his tense relationship with the intelligence community, uh, the whole Russia hacking issue as well. So there's things that I, th I sort of expected to sort of evaporate in the post-election period that are not going away. Uh, but we're starting to see, as I say, some of the pieces coming, coming together. And I don't think you can talk about a Trump doctrine, but you can say a couple of things intelligently or realistically about what his foreign policy will look like. First of all, he's not an isolationist and has made that pretty clear a couple of times. He is, and he's quite comfortable with the America First label. Actually, um, it comes from a book um, by a, a sort of academic turned public 
uh, commentator called Ian Bremmer, who's quite uncomfortable with the fact that that, that Trump lifted this kind of America first version of, uh, of a foreign policy from him. But there's definitely an element of that. So what does that mean in terms of the global stage? I don't think it means retraction. I think it means a different type of footprint of American power. In the lead up to 2016, there was a left-right, but still an elite Washington consensus that there was a crisis of world order and that America needed to get back in the world order game. So you have people on the sort of neoconservative side of the spectrum, like Robert Kagan, who's, who wrote a famous article, superpowers don't get to retire, but actually tilted towards Clinton during the campaign. You had sort of Kissinger realist line, you know, his book, uh, 2014 book, World Order. And you also had the sort of liberal internationalist line that was very um, important to the Clinton campaign. Trump is a direct break with all three of these. But the only one who's back in business from the sort of either the liberal internationalist line or the neoconservative line or the kind of uh, um, realist Kissingerian line is Kissinger. And that relationship is pretty interesting. That Trump seems to have sought out Kissinger. I'm not sure how much he listened to him, but uh, Kissinger sort of offered a kind of tentative defense of Trump and said there's an opportunity here. Um, so we will see someone who will act on the international stage, will not simply put up the barricades, he might in terms of trade, will enjoy summitry, a la Churchill, if you like, he'll enjoy the sort of shaking of hands, the visit to uh, see Putin, will enjoy, I think, the May visit in the new year. Um, so we will see someone on, you say, active on the international stage, perhaps less willing to use America power, American power in sort of peacekeeping multilateral concepts, definitely an end to the era of liberal internationalism, liberal interventionism. Uh, but I think, you know, Trump will put force and or at least the willingness to use force at the front of his foreign policy. So trade, summits, um, we're going to see a lot of Donald Trump. That's my view. You mentioned, obviously, the uh, visit by May's aides to Washington, which has only just been revealed. Uh, George, what's your take on that? And what position do you think that Britain will be likely to adopt towards America and vice versa? What shape will the special relationship take now that we've got Trump in the White House, May in number 10 and Nigel Farage being Nigel Farage? But there was always going to be a relationship with between Trump and May um, and she from the start took a much less hostile line than Angela Merkel um, which equally wasn't surprising because you know whisper it but although they are very different politicians very different um, very different positions uh, that there is some overlap between Trump and May I mean some of what some of Trump's rhetoric on protectionism and immigration is not a million miles from some of the things we heard from Theresa May particularly after she first became Prime Minister and the ties of uh, of of language culture i mean that there will still be um that traditional us uk relationship but the idea i mean the special relationship has always been overvalued it's it, it's a, it's it exists much more in the minds of of british politicians and, and uk commentators than it does in the minds of of us ones and the idea that it can somehow be a substitute for for eu membership is, is a bit of a fantasy I mean, after all we can't do a, a trade deal with any state outside of the EU until we've left. So I don't think somehow that, you know, Trump's victory provides this great get out clause that we don't have to worry about Brexit now, everything's going to be fine, which seemed to be the view that some conservatives took after after Brexit. What it has changed is is the calculation around security. Uh, and May, where she was quite tough on on Trump was was saying, you know, we are going to making it clear we will increase military resources uh, for Eastern European states. But 
Eastern European states are quite disconcerted, quite offended when people link that to Brexit. This idea that that should shape their negotiating stance. It, it seems like a kind of blackmail. Well, you better give us a good Brexit deal because otherwise Putin's going to come after you and we all know what, what stance Trump will take. Speaking of Putin, John, I mean, obviously much has been written and discussed about the potential bromance between these two self-styled strongmen leaders. I mean, can you really see that lasting the course? Who's likely to be pulling the strings? And can Trump, with Putin's support in Syria, uh, have any hope of fulfilling his slightly overblown, potentially electoral promise to crush ISIS? Yeah, um, we've been here before with the sort of bro- potential bromance between a US president and Vladimir Putin. I remember George W. Bush talked about um, looking in Putin's eyes and, and talking about Putin as a man he could do business with. Um, there was also the Hillary Clinton famously bringing the reset button uh, to Moscow. So we have sort of nominally tried to, to sort of talk up this uh, thawing of uh, US-Russian uh, relations. But the sort of mechanics and the machinery behind it, particularly with the State Department um, and other aspects of the you know, US national security apparatus, um, it's never really kind of worked. Um, I actually think we are likely to see some sort of rapprochement. And in a weird type of way, although Putin has actually won on Syria, um, uh, just, I mean, I, I, there's no question of that. He's filled the void left by the lack of Western intervention. That's not a problem in Donald Trump's mind, necessarily. Uh, there is a sort of shared logic on dealing with ISIS in the most prop, uh, in the most sort of brutal um, possible way, and we've seen that in what's happened in Syria in, in, in recent recent months. So I see actually there there is room for a, a thawing of relations, and then there's another set of ser- second and third order questions about that. First of all, in terms of the despair, in terms of uh, uh, the American pivot towards Russia under Trump. The sound, particularly from a number of the French presidential candidates, but also from much of the German uh, political establishment, with the exception of Angela Merkel, has actually been a sort of tilt towards Russia anyway, and a recognition that this relationship's been handled badly. So it's not just America running away from Europe on this. Actually, the mood music, with the exception of Britain, has been a sort of thawing and soothing uh, of relations. So, So that is sort of one to watch. Who goes first? Who jumps first? I think the French are pretty keen. Uh, already on this. Um, Second sort of second, third order uh, uh, question is actually what does Putin do with his victory? So Russia is a superpower, uh, but Russia is not a a rising power. Russia has a series of difficulties and problems and heightened by the sanctions against it. As a hemorrhaging population, it's not a particularly healthy nation in lots of ways, although it is militarily extremely powerful uh, and has conducted a number of effective military reforms in recent years while the rest of us have been sitting on our hands. The question is what Putin, as I say, does can Putin quit while he's ahead? Uh, having actually been given a significant slice of the pie that he wanted, uh, and then therefore inheriting a lot of the difficult problems um, in Syria and elsewhere. Uh, but I think with the with an American-Russian rapprochement, we better get used to the ugly things we've seen in Syria more recently. I mean, and that that I think is the the the, the next order consequence. We have to get we have to deal with sort of ugly hu- uglier humanitarian consequences uh, where. Uh, the lines of demarcation between Western and Russian influence uh, are a little bit vague and, and uh, messy. George, I mean, with this sort of global shift towards Russia and the sort of potential emergence of a new world order, I mean, would the British government also have to consider recalibrating its position towards Russia? There's no indication of that so far from Theresa May 
and um, as a you know, former Home Secretary, this is one area in which she is uh, quite comfortable um, and quite authoritative on. And so she she takes quite a, a hawkish view on Russia, and particularly on the importance of um, intelligence and the importance of a strong state and the and the value of the security services. So that is something at which she is sort of diametrically opposed to to trump on and as i say they do see it as as a card in the brexit brexit negotiations um as i said i'm skeptical of the idea that it it will be a particularly useful one but if that does become a, a growing theme in, in in global politics it, it will be in the minds of some eastern european countries Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's say China. 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 You go over to China. China. Beijing woke to this from the U.S. president-elect accusing China of unfair currency and trade practices. And this one, complaining of Chinese military expansion in the South China Sea. China. What about Trump's uh, sort of seemingly willy-nilly use of Twitter as a diplomatic tool, which has been stirring up frictions, particularly with China? Uh, is a confrontation there likely? And would we expect him to be curbing his use of social media once he actually gets into power? Or is that just wishful thinking? Um, there's two, two things to that. One is the use of Twitter. And then the second is the, the biggest issue on the horizon, which is US-Chinese relationships, which is the defining question for American grand strategy in the next quarter, half century, even longer. Um, and I think on the second, on the China, the China um, policy, um, that is the one to watch and perhaps there's more freedom for manoeuvre and there's more likely dynamism in the Trump approach and you'll see that under um, um, Rex Tillerson, for example, and I'll come to that in a moment. On the Twitter thing, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and it really is surprising and as much as anything, the sort of crisis of world order is a, is a kind of a crisis in how we proceed. The usual choreography is not being followed and actually we've been pretty slow to grasp the nettle uh, on this and you could see that and, and um, I 
I, I feel for those stuck in the British embassy in Washington, D.C., because events happen so quickly and they've been really left having to try and catch up to these type of things. And you notice the ambassador there has made a number of important speeches. He's gone to the Heritage Foundation, which is kind of the uber conservative think tank there and sort of made a, a conciliatory uh, speech. Um, Britain's also talked in, uh, he's also talked across D.C. about deploying uh, new aircraft carriers um, on their maiden vo voyages in the Asia Pacific region, region as well. So Britain's sort of trying to catch up, but we have to get used to the fact that the usual choreography and the careful way of doing things, which is interesting, which is actually something that our, our current government is very careful and cautious in terms of its approach, um, is not going to wash. We're going to have to be more dynamic in our foreign policy. And let's hope that means we're not going to have to flit around between different approaches. I think you need a sort of consistent core uh, more articulate definition of the national interest, but a, a willingness to be dynamic, um, you know, uh, within that. And I think that that's that is the new world order. And we're, you know, and I don't see Trump stopping the tweets when he becomes president as well. Um, you know, it's part of the bombast, it's part of the ballast, but it's part of the game. Uh, and you know, he's clearly not as stupid as many people thought at the outset of of, of the campaign. And clearly, there's a, there's a sort of strategic intelligence there. Um, you know, I also think that one can be over-optimistic about that, that there's some sort of hidden genius who's going to step out on the, the, the Twitter terrain and, but while secretly soothing relations. But it was interesting that when he was tweeting against China, Kissinger, with whom he has this burgeoning relationship, was also in Beijing simultaneously. Uh, his choice of ambassador um, uh, to China is someone who has known to have very good relations with the Chinese regime. So you might have two Trumps within the administration if they can get to the stage where this is uh, this sort of odd choreography as part of a as part of a synchronized approach. So, that, so a tweet doesn't blow up the work of said ambassador or uh, a whole unit at the State Department who are slowly working along. You know, if this can be coordinated better, you might, you know, we're entering sort of weird 19th century power politics here in which you have, you know, bombast and masculinity and uh, summits and, and uh, gunboats almost. And, and uh, you know, who knows where we're going with it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily doomed to conflict or disaster. We've talked a bit about the two Trumps and how that makes sort of predicting his next move uh, very difficult and also formulating a response. Uh, that clearly has played well for him so far. But George, I mean, from a sort of UK left British Labour Party perspective, how should Labour respond to Trump, uh, save from reminding voters at regular intervals that we have a racist, misogynist, etc. in the White House who also has very small hands? Mm. Well, I thought I thought the Labour response to Trump was quite interesting because that's perhaps the main line you'd, you would have expected from them. But the main line was really, this proves we're right, that this proves, this shows there is this populist backlash against the establishment. And so I think a lot of liberals, uh, sort of Blairites, Clintonites, were very disconcerted by the response of the Corbynites because they were saying, this shows there is an appetite for change. Jeremy Corbyn is different. He's he's outside of the mainstream or, or Bernie Sanders would have won. Um, I didn't think that was a great look. And I also think, it it it, started, it raises the bar quite high for Corbyn to say to start talking up his chances of of election victory because of Trump, which is you know, very different circumstances. It's not a useful comparison to make, and, and so Labour's poll ratings have been pretty poor since. And so I think as as the Lib Dems try to win over anti-Brexit voters, probably people who are very disturbed by Trump. You know, Jeremy Corbyn will need to actually be more assertive in, in, in challenging Donald Trump, I think, than he has been. 
Um, a lot of Trump's presidency will depend on on events, of course. I mean, presidents have their 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 worldviews; they have a doctrine, but those are often formed in response to events. You know, George Bush started out as an isolationist president who said, "We don't want to you know, be the world's policeman anymore." Nine Eleven changed all of that, and he he became an extremely interventionist president. So, I think Donald Trump, in part, will like others be shaped by by those events, and 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 those aren't things we can necessarily predict at the moment. John, I mean, what, what's your sort of take on this uh, potential shift to a more kind of left-wing populism? People are starting to talk about the alt-left, I've noticed, on social media. Is that a smart move for the British Labour Party to take? Um, I'm not so sure. We are in this sort of weird parallel universe now where Theresa May channels Clement Attlee, I would argue, more effectively than um, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and mentioned that in our conference speech. And Donald Trump, uh, sorry, not Donald, uh, Donald Trump uh, channels, um, you know, Roosevelt New Deal kind of discourse with a with rougher edges, really less sort of universalist um, language around the rights, uh, and you know, a, a sort of protectionist um, um, uh, pumping again, pumping up sort of uh, declining industrial areas in the country. If you notice, one of the most significant things that's happened so far is that Ford, under Trump's duress, if you like pulled out a, a, a large um, uh, plan for a massive factory in Mexico and took it back to Michigan. So, you know, this sort of odd place we're at in which I, I think a version of, quite an ugly version, but a version of patriotic social democracy is actually, you know, is having its day, an odd type of day, and a day, and it's being brought back by people we would not expect to bring it back, having its day both in the US and the UK. Uh, now, the question for the Labour Party, in particular the British left, is how it adjusts its feet to that. Uh, my own view is a sort of more liberalism, um, more sort of, um, you know, hand-wrigging at the, at the world of Trump is not really the answer. Most British voters want to move on pretty swiftly. And there's probably elements of that sort of broader message that appeals. I mean, you're also in this weird situation in which, you know, some people are speculating, I know Andrew Marr speculated in the Sunday Times about a possible snap election, you know, in, in 2017. And, there's, and, and the, the front pages of the newspapers are all full of problems with, the, with how the May government processes its business and tensions with the civil service, et cetera. Et cetera. In terms of polling figures, that's a, still a huge threat to the Labour Party, some sort of snap election. Um, so, you know, she has the ear of the country. It's, let's see how long she maintains it. But she has the ear of the country in a kind of a patriotic, social democratic, almost atleyite uh, type of way. So, I mean, that, that for me is a massive problem with the Labour Party. And Tristram Hunt's been pretty articulate about this. It, it's in danger of having its clothes stolen from it. Uh, and sort of more internationalist liberalism, you know, much as it might appeal to all of us sitting in this room, I, I'm not sure is necessarily the, the, the right answer right now. George, what's your sense from Westminster about the snap election? I mean, are we likely to see that in 2017? Theresa May doesn't want an early election. She might need one. Uh, we can think of circumstances in which um, Brexit goes so badly wrong after Article 50 is triggered that uh, Parliament proves implacable, um, that there's a, her party's divided. You say you have uh, maybe someone resigned from the cabinet. Um, we can all think of scenarios in which she decides, well, actually, um, you know, it is best for me to go to the country and to get my own mandate because, of course, she wasn't even elected by 
by her own party. But uh, as I say, I think it's I think it's unlikely. I think her, she genuinely thinks that the country needs this a period of greater stability and also doesn't expect the Labour Party to be competitive in 2020 if that is when the uh, election is. So she feels like she's got the, the luxury of, of time there. Um, but a, an early election probably becomes more likely if, for instance, the Tories win the Copeland by-election. I mean, that would be the first time a government's won a by-election uh, for decades um, or rather defeated an opposition in, in, in a by-election, has gained a seat in a, in a by-election. Uh, you know, Theresa May would have to be quite unique not to be more tempted after, after pulling that victory off. I think uh, to see 2017 as a year in which, as you term it, John, Patriotic's uh, social democracy will continue to thrive is probably quite a adept uh, judgment and probably quite a good note to end on. So I'd like to say thank you to you both for coming in to the New Statesman's New Times podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation and hope the listeners have too. Thank you. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times future of the left special podcast and you can find more information about all our other new statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.